0: This episode is brought to you by Berkland Associates. Okay, so your company is growing fast. Stuff's moving 1,000 miles a minute. It's exciting, but all that speed without the right systems in place can hurt you at scale. Enter Berkland Associates. Fractional CFOs, bookkeepers, tax and people ops experts, Berkland helps you build the right systems that can keep up with your growth and can handle all the finance, accounting, tax, and hiring services that consumer startups need to scale. From ensuring your fundamentals are sound to making sure you're prepared for the next funding round, Berkland Associates gets consumer startups. For more information, head to berklandassociates.com, and you can check out their toolkits for startups as well. Link is in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Skillful. Working in tech is exciting, fast-paced, and challenging, but sometimes getting your foot in the door can be tough. Skillful runs online immersive programs that help people launch and accelerate their careers in business roles in tech, like strategy and ops, product, strategic finance, and growth. In the program, participants learn directly from mentors who work at companies like Netflix, Uber, Shopify, DoorDash, and Instacart. Grads go on to work in biz ops product and growth at high growth startups through scale up companies like Scribed, Otter, DoorDash, Instacart, TikTok, and Wealth Simple. You can learn more and apply at joinskillful.com. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Michael Marksberry, co-founder and CEO of Oros. Oros produces award-winning apparel with their patented solar core insulation. It's the warmest, zero-bulk gear. And in Michael's words, they science the shit out of everything when it comes to outdoor apparel and when it comes to making you warm. This was such a fun chat about how he's building this incredible brand that uses space technology to build their product. Without further ado, here's Michael. Michael, thank you so much for joining me this morning. How are you doing? I'm
1: great, Mike. Uh, So much fun to be with you
0: oh it's really great thanks again for uh, for your time really excited to to jump in here So let's start from the very beginning what was your attraction to space?
1: what kid doesn't want to be an astronaut when they grow up right? Um, I certainly had that that desire but for me it really all started. Um, after I climbed this mountain in the Northeast Swiss Alps, and I looked like the Michelin man. And I came back to the US. And when I was in college, I was a science geek, and I was working in a lab and uh, doing research. And I got really lucky. And through that research, I ended up getting a a scholarship created by the uh, Mercury 7 astronauts, uh, which was super cool. And that's really when my you know affinity for space started, and that's also when I learned about this this NASA technology that uh, we now use in, in all of our products today.
0: So walk me through once you got that scholarship and how maybe you nurtured or developed a relationship with NASA. <laughs>
1: You know, so the relationship we we developed at first was with this entity that gave us the scholarship, the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation. That was first. And then, you know, we learned about this aerogel technology, which, you know, NASA said was the lowest thermal conductive solid in existence. A bunch of fancy words, meaning it's the best insulation in the universe. And, like, they're using this stuff to insulate space shuttles and the Mars rovers and, you know, all this stuff in space. And space is negative 455 degrees Fahrenheit. Like, it's 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 pretty cold. And so I'm looking back on this, you know, experience that I had where I looked like the Michelin man on top of this mountain and thinking like, and the jacket I was wearing was like insulated with like, I don't know, animal byproducts, like goose down stuff we've been using for hundreds to thousands of years. And I thought like, how come we're not using this incredible space tech like, it would solve this problem I had where I looked like the, the bitch of man on top of the mountain, right? And so the, that uh th- that launched this this company, this idea with AeroGel and um that original AeroGel tech long since expired from an IP perspective, like it was created in the 1930s. And so we didn't we didn't really have a formal relationship with NASA at that point. Uh, but with this new technology that we'll be coming out with that we can talk more about later, uh we had to we had to license some. Some intellectual property from NASA and uh, developed some uh, cool relationships along the way. And um, but be- in between that new tech and today, uh, we ended up uh, doing some really cool collaborations with a couple really famous astronauts and releasing some awesome uh, NASA oros NASA jackets that are super cool.
0: That's awesome. That's that's super cool. So I guess for your initial products and maybe with the initial idea of using aerogel for in jackets. Since there is no the IP has expired since it was developed in in the 30s, there's no patents on it that are still viable. Why haven't other other companies thought to use aerogel in jackets, do you think?
1: Awesome question. Background, right? Like uh I remember you know, I climbed the mountain looked like the Michelin man thought like, this is surreal. There's got to be a better way to like stay warm without the bulk, came back to the US, got that scholarship for the Mercury 7 astronauts. And, and through that scholarship, learned about aerogel, was so excited, thought, oh my gosh, like here's a solution to this problem I had when I was on this mountain. And uh, I told my friend about it. I told Rith uh, Venna, now co-founder and COO, right before an organic chemistry exam. I was like, dude, got this awesome idea. I want to put this aerogel stuff in this jacket. And, and he got super excited and we took the exam and like immediately ordered our first sample of aerogel. By the way, I beat him on that exam. So, that's, that's important. so we, we got the first sample of aerogel and I uh, we put it in our hands and it just shattered into a thousand little pieces. And so it became evidently clear why this tech that's been around is like the 1930s hasn't really been used in anything. And the problem was this aerogel stuff was super brittle. Uh, the, the aerogel base matrix is in amorphous silica. So, same stuff that's in like glass and sand and, and all that stuff. And, and aerogels, depending on how you make it, roughly like 98, 99% air. So, there's not a whole lot of structure there. And relative to its, its weight, uh, it can hold a lot of weight itself, relative to its mass, can hold a lot of weight. But the problem is, uh, it can't really hold a lot of weight and just kind of shatter. So we're like, oh my gosh, like this stuff would never work in apparel where you need flexibility, mobility, and, you know, all those things. And, and so we spent the remainder of our collegiate careers, our sophomore years to our senior years, just like eerily obsessed with this idea. Like, how do you take the best insulation that this world's ever created and just make it not brittle so that you can put it in apparel? That became our passion project, and we looked at the industry, the the outerwear industry and the outdoor industry, and saw like whether it was footbeds, uh, like like insoles and shoes, or uh, soft coolers. Think like you know everyone knows like the hard coolers, right? But then there's the squishy soft coolers as well, like lunchboxes and stuff like that. Uh, uh, um, and then a series of other applications as well, like sleeping pads and and all these different products they were using. Uh, a form of foam, generally closed cell, sometimes open cell, in these products uh, to provide insulation and that foam was super flexible and super durable and had a lot of structure. So we thought like, oh my gosh, if you could combine aerogel, which is flexible, but amazing insulation with this foam, which also is good insulation, but is incredibly flexible and durable you could have an amazing product. You could have a flexible, durable aerogel composite. And that created SolarCore, uh, which is what's in all of our products today. And we're fortunate to have it patented and
0: and all that fun stuff. But um,
1: that's how we created a flexible, durable uh, aerogel composite.
0: So was combining... New methods that haven't been, or or new ingredients that have never been uh, used in apparel, which is aerogel. But then, as well as maybe traditional ingredients as well, using foam, um, and that was really like the 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 secret that that became uh, Solar Core.
1: Totally, absolutely, and it, it turned out it actually worked. It's been tested against. Um, to date, over 250 other insulations. And it's beaten every single one of them from just a pure warmth perspective, thermal insulation perspective, which is great. Like it's warmer, but what makes it cool is it solved that problem that I had when I was on the mountain where I looked like the Michelin man and I was super puffy. Yeah. Uh, Because every insulation that's ever existed in apparel or accessories or, you know, all that stuff, uses loft to work, um, requires bulk and space, right? Like take goose down. Goose down works because it traps a bunch of air in between the feathers, right? And the problem is if you compress that down, you lose all that airspace and you lose the ability to stay warm. So there's this dependency on space or airspace or volume uh, in order to keep yourself warm uh, when you're in any of these environments. That is not true with aerogel and thereby solar core, because it works via prevention of conduction. When you compress solar core, uh, 15 psi, good amount of pressure, maintains 97% of its thermal performance. Or said another way, for the first time in history, you don't need a big bulky insulation to stay warm. You can have a thin piece of insulation, put it in a garment, uh, and stay incredibly incredibly warm or Super simply, no more Michelin, man, uh, which is awesome.
0: No, that's awesome. That's great. I think we've all been there with with being Michelin man um, when it comes to um, outdoor uh, weather. How do you even conduct when you're testing um, your product against others? How do you even conduct how, um, how insulated um, it is versus others?
1: Yeah, awesome question. If our chief technology officer, Jeff Nash, were on the call right now, he would be bringing up uh, a slide deck, walking through all, of, you know, all the different methods that we use. Uh, and Jeff's phenomenal. Jeff before Oros was uh, on the leadership team at Black Diamond, and before that led um, the North Faces Innovation and Materials teams. Um, awesome dude. But breaking it down the most simple form, there, on the material itself, there are standard test methods that we use called ASTM that everybody else uses. Uh, to test either thermal conductivity or thermal insulation or or all that. And that just provides like a raw scientific value that, you know, you can use on every other material and and really run like some awesome science experiments. But ultimately, it's about like what the user and the consumer feels and wears, right? So we also do human trials or human testing or or wear testing uh, uh, with our consumer base uh, before we release a product to market.
0: Yeah, no, got it. Certainly, I can understand the need. I don't think anyone enjoys looking like Michelin man. And I think that as well as space, you know, it's of course much easier not to have to store a big bulky jacket, right? And especially when you're like transporting, I'm thinking about all the times I went skiing or or what have you, or or going to 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 cold climate. It's never fun transporting, you know, all of like the ski gear. Walk me through the launch and maybe how you had to convince consumers that this was better than your big puffy jacket. Cause as a consumer, I'd be like, whoa, like that sounds crazy to me. So what was your maybe thought process of walking through like a consumer of why, why Oros was like a great bet?
1: So by our senior years of college, we had solar core. We had this flexible aerogel composite. At that point we had to make a jacket and Ruth and i two science geeks don't know anything about you know how to make apparel we wore it we were both outdoor enthusiasts but so we basically asked a bunch of like really hardcore con- uh, consumers in different areas like what do you want in a jacket um got all the, the functionality and hired a desire contractually to, like design this jacket and the jacket itself uh, oh, and then we we had to find someone to actually prototype it so we um it was through that experience we learned like hey no factory wants to work with a college student. So we changed our email addresses. That's actually when we filed incorporation. So we could say, you know, on behalf of our company, Thoros. Uh, and so uh, we got someone to, to, to manufacture our first prototypes. And um, the jacket itself, like, candidly, was pretty ugly. But it worked. Like, it had the functionality we needed and all that stuff. And the problem was we didn't have any money. Like, you know, we were totally broke. Like, spent all of our money, like, making the solar core thing. And so we needed, the problem is with, you know, apparel, and I'm sure a bunch of other product categories, these manufacturers work with MOQs, or minimum order quantities, where, you know, you can't just order five or six jackets, you've got to order whatever their MOQ is, and turned out with the current factory we we're working with, it was like a thousand units, and each each jacket, I think, costs like a hundred bucks, FOB, or basically Get it and store it over here in the U.S. So you do the math on that. We needed hundred thousand dollars to get our first, you know, batch of. Product over from over uh, from where our manufacturer was based. So we're like, uh, oh my gosh, like how are we gonna, you know, get a hundred thousand dollars? We don't have that money. Two kids from the Midwest. So we we ended up running a, a Kickstarter campaign to launch the company back in 2015 and uh, put this awesome video together, I launched it on Kickstarter, and um, was very fortunate in the first like 36 hours, at like 125 grand, like more money than two kids from the Midwest have seen before. Uh, in our lives close to like three hundred something. Um and 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 that was the start of Oros. Uh.
0: that's amazing. And um you know <laughs> that's amazing raising that money in such a short span as well. And I'd imagine too obviously not just the money, but um, which is obviously critical to launching your business. But imagine what's also super helpful about the Kickstarter campaign is that then you actually have customers that you actually can, that actually can maybe prototype or you can kind of get feedback and as well as validated. I mean, if you're raising that kind of money in like the first 36 hours, it's also must be quite validating for you because then like there was a sense of a real need for this.
1: Absolutely. You know, uh, there were a couple cool things. One is, my favorite thing is when we get an email or a message, you know, someone orders something through our site and customer service will say, hey, I just wanted you to know one of our clients or customers that just bought today uh, was also a Kickstarter customer back on day one. And that's always cool to see. Like, oh, my gosh, that's so awesome. And then, you know, I think the other thing is, uh, to your point, like Kickstarter provides validation, like there's actually this need. Now it is a very different market than, you know setting up a website and that so that there, that needs to be accounted for for sure but a lot of people do kickstarter to get that validation and then pitch vcs Ruth and i did that kickstarter because uh to, to show our parents like hey going to go do an oros was a better thing than going to med school
0: what was the next steps obviously then you went to you went and then ordered the product and were able to but what were kind of the next step after that
1: yeah uh so at that point we raised our first financing round started building up our team uh, you know, obviously turned our, our website on, started expanding our product line and all those things. In the background, in the ether, you know, like Rith and I knew that our aspirations were much bigger, right? Like if Rith and I were just building another apparel brand, we we wouldn't be as interested in what we're doing, right? Like we're not apparel guys by nature, We're we're, we're scientists like we're building at the end of the day, we knew we were building a material technology company and we knew that our our mission was to uh, empower the future of human exploration and to transform this this market of uh, thermal apparel uh, that's been antiquated for a long time. And so our from a product perspective, what we wanted to do was was bigger. We didn't just want to make, you know. Thinner or warmer outerwear like we make with Core. Essentially with Core, we give you a less bulky jacket that keeps you warmer. Uh, but what we wanted to do is we wanted to make uh, a technology that would allow a consumer to wear a long sleeve shirt that could keep you warm, sub-freezing. And to do that, you've got to make a, a really, really, really warm fiber. Uh, uh, and... I'll leave it at this. As we've been building the brand over the last couple of years, in the background, uh, we built up a phenomenal r and d team and have partnered with the Department of Defense on um, working on creating this fiber. Uh, and it comes to the world in early 2022. Uh, so we are so excited. and that was the next one of the next big steps in achieving the vision of what Riff and I wanted to
0: wanted to also understand, um, when did you decide to first fundraise like an institutional round from either um, angel investors or also uh, venture capitalists? And I'd imagine, as we talked about, you obviously have really big ambitions. Venture financing was inevitable. But what were some of the ways that you were actually able to fundraise?
1: Yeah. So we raised our first round, um, maybe like a a year or two after college, um, this was our seed round. It was $2 bucks, And Rith and I didn't know anything about venture capital. Like, our degrees were science-based degrees. Like, we thought we'd be, you know, at that point in med school. So, like, we, we didn't know much about raising capital. Um, and so, we, we learned the hard way that VCs don't respond to cold calls uh, or cold emails. <laughs> that, was a, that was a learning experience. But what, what we did is we assembled a roadshow uh, across the U.S. where we, where we in every city, organized like four or five meetings with different PCs or angels or angel groups and uh, traveled across the U.S. And, and met with them. And that was uh, an incredible experience and a big learning experience and um, ended up raising, that was the first round, ended up raising about $2 million from some really incredible uh, institutional venture firms, which... Uh, one of which is is um, with us today, and, um, and a, uh, still a phenomenal partner. So,
0: that's great. That's great. Did you experience any maybe like challenges along the way when you were um, raising from venture funds? And um, yeah, would just love to kind of hear that as well if you happen to have any stories.
1: Oh, totally. Um, we just closed our Series A. Our Series A was like fourteen point five million, uh, and brought in some phenomenal VCs. We had a small round in between uh, those two, super tiny. And we, we pitched this VC and got a term sheet. And for those that, that don't know, you know, a term sheet is just the, the, the structure of the deal. Hey, yeah, it's a convertible note. We'll do this. Or if it's a price round, hey, this is the pre-money. We'll invest this much. This is the round size. All, the, you know, all those details. And at the bottom of the term sheet, there's a no shop clause where, you know, you don't have the ability to go shop the deal, uh, or, 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 and it's a fair protection. It basically means that, you know, the, the company can't, once they get a term sheet, tell someone else, Hey, I've got this other term sheet at this price. Can you beat it? You know, uh, makes sense. So we were, we were happy with the term sheet, signed this term sheet and, uh, 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 thought like, oh, okay, cool. Like, we'll, you know, rally around this and all that. And a month went by, normally about like the diligence period, sometimes a little less. And, you know, we weren't making the progress uh, that we needed to on this round. Like they, we we just weren't progressing with them two months, three months. And at this point, like we're pretty low on cash uh, and runway. I remember like three months in this group goes, so uh, sorry, we're not gonna, we're not gonna do the deal. It just dropped it on us. And I was like, oh, sh-. namely because um, at that point, we only had a couple weeks of runway. We didn't have a lot of time to resurrect this round uh, uh, and, and get together the capital we needed. So I was, I was pretty devastated. And then not three hours later from that phone call, a car decided to skyrocket off the highway straight into Oros offices, uh, and just trash, uh, uh, the entire office. Uh, it was one of the, <laughs> it was one of the most challenging four or five hour periods of, of my experience with Oros. Uh, we got this devastating news after being dragged along for three months. And then this car just trashed the entire, entire office, destroyed it. And I had a meeting with one of my advisors and mentors like the following morning and uh, he and I talked and we put together this plan. We, we organized a whole roadshow in like a 24-hour period and met with, you know, I, thanks to a lot of help to that advisor and, and to our some of our, of our investors at the time that started making phone calls, uh, put together an entire roadshow, uh, met with all these VCs, got a term sheet, actually a better term sheet than what we had prior uh and ended up closing the round in like a in a couple week period. Uh and it was a phenomenal uh phenomenal term of events. But yeah, we we absolutely had challenges.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. So how did you once you got off the ground, you started selling on your website and developed your website. What was your approach to to growth?
1: After the Kickstarter, you know we didn't know what the world would think about Oros product. We had validation from Kickstarter, but we didn't know if what we saw on Kickstarter translated to like the real world. It's just, it's, it's just, it was a different world. And so we turned on our website and it was really a, a, a big test. One of the core philosophies and values that we have at Oros, and it relates to your question of how we approach growth, is, is have grit. And that's like every company value. Every company has like that value, whether it's have grit or perseverance or you know, something like that. Uh, but for us, it's a little different. And we believe that we as humans are very afraid of failure. It's like this innate feeling like that we have. And that's, that's fine. But, but we believe in sciencing the shit out of everything you do. Uh, and if you believe in that mentality, if you believe in having grit, and that means you view things, uh, especially at Oros, as a science experiment. You have a hypothesis. You test that hypothesis, and either it's right or it's wrong. If it's wrong, we as humans view that as failure, we get downtrodden like, oh my gosh, like this, you know, this thing will never work or whatever. Um, but at Oros, if you have grit. And if you believe in science and they should have everything you do, that failure is a a learning lesson that you you can reapply to your hypothesis, modify accordingly, and try again. And so our approach at Oros, and and, and especially whether it's like digital marketing, for example, uh, or or growth hacking or whatever you want to call it, um, is, is all about science experiments. So it started off as a big test. You know, do we have consumers that want it launched on Kickstarter, found out? Yes. Got the money we needed to buy the inventory. Then we moved uh, onto our website and said, "Well, you know, Kickstarter is an isolated community for the most part. Like, what about the real world? Is the real world going to want this?" Ended up generating success, um, uh, hitting a, a good amount of revenue in year one. Uh, and they were like, oh, "Okay, well, we sold really well three months out of the year because we're selling this product that's like a tank of a jacket. It will keep you warm, sub-freezing. Is very thin, but..." You know, it's all about warmth. So maybe we should probably, we're learning from this or failures, we should start diversifying our product uh, uh, and having you know sportswear, accessories, and, and other things. So then we expanded our product. But now we're still seasonal. Like we're you know we're we're a three season company. We haven't addressed summer yet. But uh, that was the next step. Then we did that and said, well, you know, we could probably work on our designs. And so we we moved the company to Portland, Oregon, which is the technical apparel com- uh, headquarters of the world. You got. Uh, some incredible companies here in the space, whether Nike or uh, Adidas North American headquarters under armor has a campus out here uh, built up a phenomenal product team, got the design store that needed to be. And, and, and so it's, it's a constant learning experience a constant science experiment. And we're constantly science and the shit out of everything that we can do to improve the company.
0: I love that because as you say, like, if you think about it in a science, Scientific way, whatever you do, there is no failure because when you have a hypothesis and then you run the experiment, and even if that hypothesis, even if it doesn't hold true, then you've still learned that that hypothesis hasn't run true, and that, and you've learned what the right answer is. Then, right? That's really, really cool, and uh, I think that's a great, also kind of outlook to look at, you know, entrepreneurship or starting anything.
1: I, I th- one caveat: I do think that there is failure, but I think failure is a lack of taking those small failures along the way like if we get so afraid that we start stagnating and and, and being afraid to take those